and they kill the shit out of Ray Curtis. They bend him in half. <laughs> they give him a legitimate backbreaker. Welcome to the Review to Death podcast. I'm Marcus. And I'm Luke. We're in our second week of Halloween, and we've got a special guest tonight. We've been sort of hinting at him over the past couple episodes. We are super excited to welcome author R. Jacob Honeybrook to the show. Hey, what's up, guys? Thank you for having me on. Really excited for this one. Yeah, welcome to the show, man. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you, guys. I've heard a lot of good things about you through the Midnight Terrors podcast and ZC Curls, so stoked to be here. The universe is building. Yeah, we first heard of uh, Roy. <laughs> we first heard of Roy on a Midnight Terrors podcast episode. Uh, we love having authors on here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this stuff that you write or what you're into? Sure. So a lot of what I write um, deals with more of a psychological horror aspect, as far as really getting in the minds of people, figuring out what makes them tick. I would say that's like fifty percent of my writing, especially my earlier works like April Awakening, Devils in the Night. And then in my light latest two, I kind of got more into the crime element of things. So Roadkill Blues is a very crime heavy story, almost like a neo-noir meets neo-western set out in the desert. A lot of cops and robbers going on there. And then my latest work, New Year's Killing Eve, that kind of takes that crime element and mixes it with the horror element. So you have these robbers that go to rob this millionaire at his New Year's Eve party. But when they show up, all the party guests are dead and the madman eventually turns all these party guests into zombies and the robbers have to find a way to get out. Hopefully, you know, in one piece and with their lives. So I had a lot of fun with that one. Definitely some uh, dusk till dawn elements in there. I uh, I loved it. I actually I just read it a couple of days ago. Just really enjoyed it. Uh, really kind of brought out those um, Resident Evil vibes. I don't know if you're a, a video game player at all. I'm a, I know Marcus and I both are huge Resident Evil fans since uh, back in the day. And uh, it gave me like that feeling uh, through and through. Like it could be like the beginning of a Resident Evil movie. It was not, not to, it was just, I don't know, just a lot of fun, a lot of fun to read. I read it in like no time at all. It was uh, just a lot of fun to, to read. Well, that's awesome. I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. And Resident Evil was definitely what I was going for in that one. I had written a couple super serious uh, books leading up to that one, and I just needed a nice palate cleanser. So when I started thinking about what I could do, I wanted to do the team of career criminals robbing a super rich guy at New Year's Eve. But then I just started thinking, well, what would go good with that? How about some zombies? And I've always loved the Resident Evil games. I can distinctly remember the day my brother brought the first Resident Evil game home. We were playing Kirby like a week before. And then he brings this game home where you're blowing heads off zombies and just fighting tyrants. You know, Resident Evil has definitely played a played a role in my horror journey up until this point. You know, I, I used to just watch my sister and my buddies just play all the games. And then when I got a little bit older, I tried them out myself and I just love them. Yeah, I read uh, I read New Year's Killing Eve as well. And I also did the Roadkill Blues. I like how those two were connected. And um, as I was reading them, because these are these are short stories, so real easy to read, uh, you guys. So if you are you're looking for some fun stuff to read, go out and check these out. Especially that both of them felt like a creep show episode, you know, like or like a like a little like a like a little part of an anthology, you know. It had a had a good setup, had some nice action, a little twist. Yeah, I enjoyed both of that, both of those things from those stories. Yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that because. I tend to write shorter works. I have two novellas out, two short stories out. When I write these things, it's almost like I'm thinking, what would make a good Twilight Zone episode? You know, Twilight Zone has always told just <laughs> some of the best amazing stories in about 20 minutes. And then I also think back to Edgar Allan Poe. He only wrote one full novel. So much of what he's known for are just his short works. So when I'm going through this stuff in my head, when I first started writing, I kept harping on word count. Oh, it's a novel. It has to be at least 80,000 words. It's a novella. It has to be at least 40,000 words. And then the more I thought about it, I was just like, you know what? A good story doesn't always have to meet XYZ criteria to be a good story. Sometimes a great story can be told in 
a hundred words. Sometimes it does take, you know, a hundred thousand words to tell a great story, but really it's fleshing out what you want that story to be. And however long it is, is however long it is. That's just what I go with. Absolutely. The other one I read from yours was uh, April's Awakening, which you said is one of your earlier ones. Yeah, that was actually, well, (laughs) I'd written two novels before that full length ones. And then when, you know, those were kind of the warm ups to my writing career, I guess you would call it. Um, April Awakening is really really the third one that I'd written. And that's really when I stopped caring about the word count, stopped caring about, oh, it has to fit this trope. You know, A has to happen in the first part, B has to happen in the second part, and really just went with my own feelings as far as how to tell the story that I want to tell and not necessarily focusing so much on what is traditional or what the industry wants or whatever that is. Um, So yeah, April Awakening was the first one I published. And that one definitely has more of that. I've heard it thrown around like emotional horror. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, um, you know, it's, it was great. I read, I read them back to back. So it's so interesting to go from April's Awakening to New Year's Killing Eve because the tone is so different. Uh, you know, yes. whereas like, like I said, uh, New Year's Killing Eve is like your Resident Evil body horror, you know, dudes with guns blasting uh, with you know, some quips and some humor. All in like a quick 29 pages uh, where you have April's Awakening, which is a little bit longer. It's 49 pages. Also flies right by. But it's, yeah, it's like an emotional ghost story. It's got some legitimate spooky moments in it. And just like a good poignant, you know, wrap up to the whole thing. I just, uh, I don't know. It was really cool to to go, you know, to read one after the other to see like, man, like this guy can write all kinds of different, you know, uh, genres and tones. So, um no, I just I really enjoyed them both. I, I really highly recommend it. I'll definitely check out the rest of your stuff. And it's um again, it just you know, I uh, can't say enough good things about it. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate that. And um it's one of those things I hear authors say sometimes they're afraid to step out of their comfort zone, they're afraid to step out of their genre. And that's never really been a problem for me. Um a lot of times, well not a lot of times, I don't want to make it sound like people are coming up to me every day like, "Oh my god, you're a horror horror author." Blah, blah, blah. Um <laughs> But sometimes I've had people tell me they don't really consider April Awakening that much of a horror story. Like, sure, there's a horror overtone to it. There's definitely spooky elements. But I've had people tell me it feels more like a drama or something in that vein as compared to your straightforward, you know, hack and slash killer in the woods type story. And as much as I love horror, I feel like that's such a big compliment because anything you can write that that crosses over genres or kind of transcends a genre and people people pick up on that it's really something cool to see and it it feels good when people see that there's a little more to it than just ghosts in the woods or whatever it's very interesting to see because you know like uh somebody who is thought of as like a horror person can bring a different perspective into different genres, like a different way of thinking. And, you know, like one of the guys that I think about that um, people don't realize is Wes Craven. You know, Wes Craven did so many different things. Like we watched a few here. We watched The Serpent and the Rainbow, which is like, you know, straight up voodoo thing. And then he's got his The Freddy stuff, which is, uh, you know, straight up horror. And then Red Eye, that movie Red Eye, you remember that psychological thing on the plane? I was going to say, too, as far as Wes Craven, how about John Car- Carpenter? I mean, the dude invented Halloween. He invented Absolutely. the slasher flick, basically. And, you know, the next thing you know, he's doing Escape from New York and Escape from L.A., doing these crazy dystopian movies and then just everything he did after that. Wes Craven, just to, if we're, we're talking about Wes Craven, he also had um, completely stepped out of his horror box for one movie. I don't know if you are familiar with, um, <laughs> we talked about this on the podcast once before. I know what you're going to say. And damn if, I, oh, it's called Music of the Heart. Have you ever heard of Wes Craven's Music of the Heart? I have not. I take it pretty good about in that one. No, no. Uh, it is a drama, complete straight up drama, uh, about a story of a school teacher's struggle to teach violin to inner city Harlem kids, starring Meryl Streep. Hmm. Yeah, it's good. Uh, I haven't seen it. Marcus just says he saw it at some point. <laughs> I saw it in school. They made me watch I, it for something, and I don't remember I, it at all. So I, I was <laughs> that sh- says how good it is. I was shocked to discover this existed because we we watched uh, Serpent and a Rainbow, which is insane. 
but I was going through his filmography. And I'm like, what is what is music of the heart? That sounds not scary. And uh, yeah, it's just a drama that he did. Just just the one drama that he you know did, and apparently it's well regarded. So uh, I think it's got like a six point eight on IMDb. So I don't know, maybe worth checking out. I mean, that synopsis <laughs> that synopsis sounds really cringy, but um, <laughs> well, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know. Coming from a a music background, bands would always get a lot of flack if they're a straight, you know, hardcore band, hardcore band, hardcore band, and then all of a sudden they put out something that sounds a little bit different. Well, now all the diehard fans are saying, "Yeah, well, what's this? That's that's not real music. That's not what they really are." Blah blah blah. Right. And now that I'm more on the creative side of things, I get where they're coming from. You know, I don't want to just write, you know, horror right. novel, horror novel, horror novel. I want to throw some crime in there every now and then I want to throw oh. some maybe romance in every now and then. Um, not that it gets boring, but I write from a lot of emotion and a lot of feeling. And sometimes I'm feeling more than just blood and guts. <laughs> or Sometimes sure. I'm feeling more than just yeah, exploring what's going on in the human brain. And, and you can really do that in, in the genre of horror of itself, because there's so many offshoots and so many subgenres. So, like we were talking about, April Awakening is more of that deep emotional, psychological feel to it. Whereas something like New Year's Killing Eve is just guys with guns blasting zombies, some humor in there too. Um, you can really get creative in the horror genre. And, and not to ramble, but along those lines, I, I often think like if you're writing a, a drama, you know, there's there's not a whole lot to that. Then it can be taken as as much as oh, it's a drama. But if you look at horror, you can say a lot of stuff through that. Um, what am I looking for? Through that element of horror. You know, you can tell a lot of different stories through that. Um, I always look at Night of the Living Dead as an example. You know, he wrote that to just be a, a zombie flick. And the next thing you know, it's this big critique on society and same right. with Dawn of the Dead, yeah, even though definitely. it's a little more aware in that one. But but you can just tell so many stories through horror and, and in so many different ways that I, I think that you don't get with comedy or a straight drama or anything like that. Yeah, definitely. And I'll tell you, uh, April's Awakening reminded me of one of my favorite Stephen King books called Bag of Bones. I don't know if you're familiar with that book at all, uh, which okay. kind of brings me to kind of my, I guess it's a cliche question, but like, do you have any authors that kind of influenced you? Like anybody that you kind of like grew up reading? Yeah, I always say I'm the worst with this because I read a lot, but I've never necessarily been a fanboy of like one author. Um, a lot of people think, oh, you're a horror author. You must love Stephen King. My brother was the guy who loved Stephen King. That guy can talk about him for <laughs> days on end. Um, <laughs> for for me, I just to mess with him, I was, I was always like, Stephen King's not that great. I can do that, whatever. <laughs> but, um, but I mainly find myself reading reading more you know if you listen to music people say i listen to more songs not the albums i read more books not necessarily authors sure. so i've read so many different books by by so many different authors um a couple that come to mind that really stuck with me whose work stuck with me um f scott fitzgerald you know obviously the great gatsby sure ernest hemingway i mean he has some obviously killer writing out there there's a reason you know everybody knows who he is yeah, and um yeah, and more in the horror genre, like I touched on a little bit before, Edgar Allan Poe in really just showing me that that you don't always have to follow these these traditional standards and these traditional tropes that have been put in place. You know, he <laughs> he he was pretty he was pretty wild in that regard as you you think of a writer who's famous and, and 9 times out of 10 they've written novels or they've written these long plays or whatever. Um, but he really got big just writing these creepy short stories for newspapers and magazines. And, right. um, yeah, I, I really take a lot away from him and I think a lot of other people have as well. And what I mean by that is I see Edgar Allan Poe as kind of the OG of what we know as modern horror. Oh, and sure. then the next, yeah. And then the next step from him is kind of, um, Lovecraft. And then yep. the next progressive step from him is Rod Serling. And I can see a lot of, you know, um, Lovecraft and Poe in Rod Serling's work in the Twilight Zone. You know, I can read uh, Edgar Allan Poe's story, watch a Twilight Zone episode and see a lot of similarities there. 
And then right. kind of the next progression in our generation would be that Stephen King. And when I read certain Stephen King books or I see certain Stephen King movies, I can look back and say like, oh, that reminds me of a Twilight Zone episode or, oh man, that really reminds me of an Edgar Allan Poe story I read. So it's kind of cool to see that progression and how different people can take a different perspective on these stories that have been told throughout centuries by this point now. If I could say one more thing about your books, I'm looking at you right now. I'm looking at Roy on our, our video and he's got a nice, nice tight haircut. <laughs> and uh, at the end of uh, Rogue Hill Blues, man, one of the best author photos in a <laughs> bitch in here. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. <laughs> Is it the same one that's hair? on Amazon? <laughs> Is it the same one that's on uh, and on the Amazon? And maybe I maybe not be the same. No, same so so I went back and I reformatted basically okay. all of my books. And when I did that, I pretty much had to create new files for all of them. But okay. Roadkill Blues, I didn't have to create an entire new document because it was pretty well formatted. I just had to touch it up a little bit. And the author photo on the back of that, I have just long hair down past my shoulders. I think my oh, beard's sweet. probably getting down past my neck at that point. <laughs> Total metalhead who threw on a suit and thought he was someone, you know? Oh, yeah. Nice. Think about early think about early Metallica. Yes. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> James Hetfieldish. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's great. Like, I'll tell you what, when I had the long hair in college, I would shave my beard into those mutton chops like Hetfield did. And <laughs> oh, yeah. Nice. And one That's of the awesome, best compliments dude. I ever got, I walk into my school's radio stations and one of the DJs is there and she just looks at me. She's like, you look like the guy from Metallica mixed with Triple H. I'm like, <laughs> can I marry you right here and now or do I have to wait? Like, how does this work? <laughs> That's awesome, dude. That is a good compliment for sure. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing your, your writing process and what sort of influences you. And, and speaking of uh, one of the points that you touched on where, you know, writing and, and coming at different things from different genres and different backgrounds. And uh, uh, last week we started and you started us off, Roy, with um, a non-horror something that would be good as a horror movie show whatever so we got another one tonight i'm going to throw it out there for us to discuss this one comes from nick frequent guest on our podcast nick my brother nick he said that when he thinks about this question he thinks about rocky the original rocky and uh the way he sets this up is uh is uh, philadelphia is zombified everybody's a zombie now Rocky doesn't seem to be phased by it. He just goes on living his life, having his boxing matches against zombies. He uh, he goes home and he, he 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 hangs out with Adrian, and Adrian's a zombie, but he seems to not know that she is. And uh, he said constant close-ups on Stallone's confused face as he tries to talk to Adrian and set up fights with Mickey, zombie Mickey. So uh, I'll throw that one out to the group. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Nick. <laughs> so he's boxing zombies? <laughs> yeah. He, he, he says a comedy in this is that Stallone either doesn't know or doesn't care that everybody's a zombie. He just wants okay. to keep being a boxer. Okay. So, okay. So here's you got to bear with me here for a second. This is my, my Stallone impression. Jesus Christ. How come these guys don't fight back? <laughs> <laughs> Why well, want to punch him in the head? Just turned the mud, huh? <laughs> Yo, Adrian, what's going on with you today? You look terrible. <laughs> no, I love that idea. I was I was a boxer. I've lived in Philadelphia, so uh, a Philadelphia full of zombies might be the only thing scarier than normal Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> But I, that would be cool. Like he can go back and fight his old opponents. So it's true. Zombified Apollo Creed, zombified Drago, zombified Mr. T would be absolutely badass. I still want him to be a shit talker. Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> Dude, that'd be cool, man. Like Rocky hanging out with that Apollo. That'd be like Sean hanging out with Nick Frost at the end of Sean of the Dead, man. Like they're still playing video games together. They're hanging out. That'd be cool. Doing I, I can see that. together. Yeah, I'd watch that. <laughs> oh, good job, Nick. Uh, anybody out there listening, if you have any ideas, send them to us. We'll uh, we'll gladly talk about them. This stuff is kind of is uh, fun for us.
So, Luke, what's Alone in the Dark about? Alone in the Dark is a 1982 horror slasher movie about a few dangerous and delusional mental patients who break out of a mental asylum during a power blackout and lay siege to their new doctor's house, who, they believe, killed their previous doctor. And it's important that you said 1982 because there are so many things named Alone in the Dark. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty common title. There's a... uh, well, there were video games starting back in, uh, I think, was it 1992 was the first one that came out, or 1990 maybe even? Something like that. Early 90s. Uh, it was like the, when we talked about Resident Evil earlier, bringing it back. Resident Evil wouldn't have been Resident Evil without Alone in the Dark. Because if you ever look at the, like the old school Alone in the Dark video games, that's literally, imagine Resident Evil, but with like three polygons per character. Like it's just really, really old school like the backgrounds are i think they're hand drawn like with pixels i mean it looks pretty bad by today's standards but it's literally resident evil but like much much lower res so so in like i think the early 2000s uh infamous uh shit director uobol uh adapted the first game into a movie which was you know like all his movies was terribly terribly uh received and then uh, somehow it got a sequel, though Ubal didn't come back for that one. It was also really badly received. So yeah, there's a lot of Alone in the Dark stuff out there. I mean, there's like there's several of the games in the series too. Uh, this has nothing to do with any of that. Uh, it's a, it's its own weird and wild thing. It, I don't know, uh, Roy, if you got back far enough with us, but we we just did an episode over the summer on a movie called Without Warning. I don't know if you've ever heard of that movie. No, I haven't heard of that one. Yeah, you're you're. Uh... <laughs> there's a lot like 95% of the world has not heard of this movie <clears throat> we only heard about it because we had just watched Predator 2 and the guy that plays the Predator in that Kevin Peter Hall is also the alien in this movie so we're like oh, we'll watch it right and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say what I said before that movie is that I don't know why this movie exists and I have no idea why freaking Jack Palance and Martin Landau are in it because in Alone in the Dark this movie stars Jack Palance, Martin Landau, and Pleasance, Donald Pleasance. And I have no idea why they ever decided to do this. Yeah, it's amazing. Two future, well, at that point in their career, uh, Academy Award winners? Or did they, did they were nominated and one win? I can't remember. But anyway, like highly decorated. Acclaimed actors. Yeah, acclaimed actors. Uh, and especially without warning, that, that movie is... Not great, <laughs> but uh, uh, this one I'll, I'll argue is a lot of fun. Yeah, that that was my overall takeaway from it. I, I'm the thing that kept playing in my mind was goofy. It's just a, a stupid, fun, goofy movie. It's so goofy, isn't it? It's so fucking yeah. goofy. It's so fucking I wrote, weird. I wrote down that that Palance and Landau are going for the Oscar, that they're never going to win. Because both of them play two of the inmates at the asylum. And I guess we should explain this asylum because it's got like three floors. And on the first two floors, it's like just a normal sort of retreat for people that have issues or people that are working through some things. And then like the state wanted to take these four guys, right? Four guys. Yep. And but – they said it had to be a maximum security facility, which the doctor played by Donald Pleasant said no to. So they're on the third floor and they have all these electronic gates. Well, they have like one gate. One gate. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. We hear about them, but we only see one. They, Landau's character, they call him Preacher, right? Yes. And he just spouts like, you know, biblical shit all the time. And then palance's character i forget what they what the, he called himself but he's like a army vet right he he's just he's just frank he's just there, frank <laughs> yeah other other guys have fun names there's a guy that's just called fatty <laughs> and, and then there's another guy called the bleeder <laughs> so you got let's 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 recap real quick we got <laughs> we got preacher we got fatty we got the bleeder and we got frank so <laughs> Those are our, but, those but are, Frank is maybe the most unhinged besides preacher because he just starts screaming at people every so often. All right, he's the leader. Like he's these are the quote unquote rough customers on the third floor, and uh, yeah, he's like he's a leader. He's like a prisoner. Uh, was he a former prisoner of war or something like that? That's or, what it was. That's yeah, what yeah, it was. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. 
so he's got he's got some army training. He's got some bad PTSD. Uh, and yeah, these four guys are on the third floor alone because they're so dangerous, uh, and they're separated by this <laughs> by this one electric door. And there's only one dude looking after him who apparently works there twenty four seven. He's just always there. Ray Curtis. He's, he seems like he's another inmate. He's got issues as well. Like, yeah, yeah, but he's and, and you got to imagine that's going to end well. One guy looking after four, <laughs> yeah, four patients like that twenty four hours a day. He'll be okay. Yeah, he'll be fine, right? And Fatty, by the way, is like six foot seven. <laughs> by the way, the guy that plays Fatty, his name is Erlen von. Lithium. Oh man, it's like a Netherlands name. I'm sorry, I'm gonna mess that up. Anyway, he played Dynamo in The Running Man. I don't know if you remember. That's that. I thought that, so. I was gonna <laughs> ask you about that because it looked yeah. like him. It's fucking yeah, Dynamo. It did. Yeah. Wow. So that was Dynamo with hair. <laughs> so yeah, that's why he, he looked different then. So big, big dude, big dude. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and man, you can't be mad at Ray Curtis, the orderly man. He literally is there all the time. I, it looks like he lives there. Like nobody even like relieves him when it's nighttime. Like what the hell's up with that? It's like the worst security ever. Is my point for these four dudes? Because Doctor Leo is a, kind of a lunatic himself. That's Donald Pleasance. He doesn't believe yeah. in incarceration or whatever. So yeah, right. Roy, Roy, talk to us about this doctor. Does he seem to have a handle on this place? <laughs> you know what really hit it for me when I realized this guy doesn't have a clue what he's doing is whenever the the one inmate, I think it was Preacher, went up to um to the main character and was like, I need a match. And the doctor's <laughs> like, no, you can't have matches. Get out of here. And then he goes up to Donald Pleasance and he's like, I need a match. And Pleasance is like, here, take the whole book. Yeah. I'm like. This guy might be a little incompetent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He he goes up to he goes up to Doctor Dan Potter first, who's our main character. He just moved to the area. He's the new doctor, and uh, yeah, he's like, well, he asks Doctor Dan for a match, and Peter's like, well, Doctor Leo lets me have him whenever I ask him, and I'm like, wait, what? And he does, <laughs> and the next scene, he's got his shirt on fire and he's swinging it around. <laughs> And, I, and he like gets anime. really close to a couple of those extras. Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> Fucking Martin Landau just, <laughs> just swinging that thing around. Hey, before we get into all that, that opening scene in the diner, did that give you guys major like Twin Peaks, David Lynch vibes? Yes, it's weird, right? Because it took me a minute to figure out that it was a dream. Yeah. Yeah, I loved it. I love that it. it was such a weird, like, just a, I mean, it was. It, was, it had dreamlike quality to it. But man, it just kept getting crazier and crazier all of a sudden because we aren't introduced. We don't know who this guy is yet. It's Preacher having a nightmare. You know, the the pyromaniac guy that was we were just talking about flinging his flaming shirt around. So he's super crazy. It's this super crazy dude's dream. And he walks in there and here comes Donald Pleasance dressed like the cook. He's got the biggest cleaver I've ever seen. And he strings up preacher by his legs so his legs are spread apart and just as he's about to split it down the middle crotch first that's when he wakes up screaming and it turns out he has a reason for to have that nightmares because dr leo threatens him with that like all the time whenever he tries to burn some stuff it's cool how a lot of that plays into it like that's foreshadowing of how the doctor threatens preacher and if you remember the the sister, she always says about how she was scared of the dark and a hand coming out from under the bed and grabbing her. And then towards right. the end of the movie, we actually see that happen. So it's almost like these nightmares and these fears are almost prophecies. Yeah, they're like premonitions. Yeah, it's good. I mean, the movie sets stuff up really well, I think. Mm-hmm. Hey, I thought, too, probably because it's Donald Pleasance in an asylum, but I felt like this could almost be in the Halloween timeline in a bizarro type world or something, just because oh, Mike yeah. Myers, he yeah. was like, this. he escaped. Uh, Donald Pleasance was his doctor. These inmates, you know, I felt like it all, could almost be a prequel or maybe a sequel where they see what Michael did and they got inspired and now they want to escape. Um, so I almost <laughs> or, like, or, Michael's almost- the, or Michael's the fifth patient up on the third floor and they throw a little scene in there where they walk past the door and it's locked and they're like, oh no, we don't talk about him in there. <laughs> yeah, that would have been cool. Dude, in, in my head canon, it's like Dr. Loomis is like kind of stupid twin brother who Dr. Loomis doesn't <laughs> talk about. He's like, yeah, I got, you know, like fucking Leo, man. I can't, he's just doing his own thing in this fucked up asylum somewhere. 
It's totally unsafe. <laughs> he's gonna get. He's, it's totally unsafe. He's gonna get people killed. Anyway, I get. I gotta get back to hunting this lunatic here in the white mask. <laughs> I guess we should introduce the fact that this new character, or this new doctor, Doctor Potter, is our main character, and it's his family is that is gonna get terrorized later on. He's got a wife, and uh, he's got a sister that comes to visit, and he's got a daughter, who's what 11, 12 years old. Probably about that, yeah. Maybe a little older. Yeah, something like that. Ly- Lila is her name, and his uh, his wife's name is his wife's name is Nell, and his uh, sister, who's also pretty unhinged, uh, that's Tony. You know what? I might be I might be an idiot, but I thought that was his older daughter the whole time. Oh, it, really, he, Tony? I wouldn't blame you. Yeah. I heard the only re- I heard him say sister early on. I heard one of the the her Doctor Potter or his wife say sister early on in the movie. Okay. Yeah, that's that's the only way you would know. Yeah, I could see where it would be where you could confuse that. I was in the middle of ordering a pizza during this. So <laughs> <laughs> Full disclosure, the first 10, 15 minutes might be a little blurry. It's all good, man. It's not doesn't even matter. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what leads his family to be terrorized later? Luke already mentioned it is that these four guys, you know, because Dr. Potter is replacing another doctor who moved off to. Philadelphia, right? We've already talked about Philadelphia. That's right. My city. And uh, uh, the four guys uh, decide that he's here because he killed Dr. Potter, killed the old doctor who they all liked. And yeah. I, I really like the scene. It's just Jack Palance being Jack Palance <laughs> where he's talking in his voice. He's like, you know, he killed the other. He killed Dr. Whatever his name is. Dr. Merton. <laughs> so we're going to yeah. have to kill him. Yep. It just and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. Dr. Potter's in real trouble. Like, he's not going to know about this and he's going to get surprised. But then, like, the, the orderly that takes care of him literally tells him about that conversation in the next scene. And Dr. Potter's like, yeah, it happens. Whatever. Yeah, I mean, they got a whole electric door separating them from the rest of the world. What could go wrong? <laughs> right. It's, not it's like a common, it's a common thing. Yeah. Yeah. He'll be fine. And, and what's the thing with bleeder? He bleeds out of his face, but why? I missed why they say that <laughs> happens. Because we don't see his face ever. And he says, because like, uh, Pleasant's his character, he likes to say, he said that like bleeder doesn't like to show his face. Right, because he's Did shy. Did you catch that, Roy? No, I do. I caught the part. I heard bleeder. And then didn't it keep coming up throughout the movie? Wasn't somebody afraid of the bleeder or whatever? Or was yeah. I just hearing stuff? Well, Somebody he is was the craziest one of them all. Like when yeah. they do break out of the asylum and mm-hmm. he kills somebody in the hockey mask, you know, yes. Friday the 13th throwback. <laughs> it is that hockey mask. It's great. Uh, yeah. Even the, even the rest of the guys are like, okay, well, we're done with this guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and let's yeah, but- talk too about just how, how anticlimactic that hockey mask kill was. I thought it was <laughs> like, I thought it was a joke and he was pretending to kill one of the inmates just, to make him laugh, but it turned out to be a real, real kill. And I was like, Oh, okay. That guy's dead. <laughs> just, just kill that random looter guy. <laughs> and the sound effect was hilarious. Cause it was just like, he has this garden tool and just goes, <laughs> it's like, Oh, all right. <laughs> yeah. By the way, uh, the bleeder, I gotta, I gotta give his whole name. Cause it's awesome. It's John, the bleeder skag. And, uh, oh, yeah, he, John Skaggs, and he, yeah. that is badass. And he gets yeah. uh, he gets nosebleeds. He's a serial killer. He's a straight up fucking serial killer, and he gets nosebleeds whenever he gets like excited, basically. And killing okay. makes, makes him okay. excited. That's what it was. So that, that makes that's, a lot more sense now. That's why all the blood is coming out of his nose, and that's like his like signature card is he gets nosebleeds, and that's why they call him the bleeder. I want a spin off bleeder movie now. So hell yeah, dude! That'd be awesome, right? <laughs> You know he's coming because he drips blood all over you. <laughs> no yeah, time you to run. Dude, you come home and there's a trail of blood. Oh, like, oh shit, dude, someone has had a nosebleed in my room. I'm going to die. Bleeder's oh, near. Oh, fuck, it's bleeder, get down. <laughs> <laughs> Some first grader gets a nosebleed in class. He all gets falsely accused of being the bleeder. <laughs> the bleeder's here. The bleeder. <laughs> they walked up, Jimmy. <laughs> so yeah well the thing that uh we talked about in the synapses happens the blackout which lets all the crazies out and then we immediate get that, rioting that, by the way immediate in this tiny little town <laughs> you know what i thought that too but here, here's a quick story time i was in a grocery store the one day 
and it was a perfectly fine day. All of a sudden, the power goes out. And oh, after about 60 seconds, everyone was ready to kill each other. Now, keep in mind, <laughs> this was around Philly, so that may have played a role in it. But like within a minute, people are like, oh, get the registers open. Oh, what's the hold up? And like, I got a refrigerator stuff that's going cool. Like these people are ready to throw down because they can't check out for like a minute. And then like oh, 30 seconds later, it comes back on. I'm just and thinking, was that really all worth making a fool out of yourselves? But right. it showed how quickly society can just go yeah. to hell. No, I believe it, man. Yeah, it doesn't take much. That's scary, though, man. Yeah, I know it's uh, it's not. So, you know, people go people go crazy over the smallest thing. So I, I, I believe it. I believe a, a, a you know, uh, a full on fucking riot would start after a blackout. That's a a prolonged blackout. Oh, absolutely. We're always just one snap away from just people going off the edge. Yeah, but our uh, our our inmates are safe and secure in their building. That, that electric door is doing some work, right? <laughs> Well, yeah, it's good. Unfortunately for Ray Curtis, it does not. And they kill the shit out of Ray Curtis. They bend him in half. <laughs> they give him a legitimate backbreaker. Yep. <laughs> yep. I thought I when I because the, the shot sort of close up. So I was like, oh, they you know, I heard the crack. But it's like in my head, I'm like, no, he could be fine. Like he could just, you know. <laughs> But then they give him the long shot, and he's like literally in half, like bent over backwards. <laughs> he's bent like the letter C. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, he's not getting back up. <laughs> um, and now we know that uh, Dr. Potter and his family are fucked because uh, Fatty uh, very easily, may I add, got his home address from Dr. Leo's office, which is just unlocked all the time. Anybody can just wander in there and grab that. It's so the internet he's, before the he's internet. Actually, he's actually the character that makes it there first because um, Dr. Potter and his wife and his sister were at a, a, at a rock show. Oh, can we talk about this? Chop, <laughs> chop, chopping your eyes totally. out. <laughs> Dude, they go to see a band called The Sick Fucks. <laughs> and did you see in the credits it credited the sick fucks as themselves so that was yeah. an actual band it's a oh, real wow. band i know Fantastic. i looked at, i looked at the trivia and uh they actually had a whole other band like a made-up band name like planned that was going to be part of um uh in that scene and then uh oh shit hold on bear with me just for a second because i had it here the alone in the darkers <laughs> i will say this there's okay one of the trivia this made me laugh. Uh, one of the members of the Sick Fucks ran into uh, Jack Palance like years later in the streets of New York, and he said to Palance like that he was one of the Sick Fucks on the on stage, right? He was one of the <laughs> band members, and then Jack Palance replied, "We were all Sick Fucks in that movie." <laughs> <laughs> Literally, what he said to him, which of course he did. <laughs> oh, so. Man. Anyway, it's, yeah, the sick fucks. It's just like, how would you describe the sick fucks, uh, Roy? I would describe them. It's funny. I wrote this down. I would describe them as a punk rock guar. Yes. Yes. Guar. Okay. I wrote yeah, down guar. Yeah, like, like, like splatter punk. <laughs> yeah. Kind of like, kind of like misfit sound, but with guar look to them. You know, they had like yeah. the big uh, axe and knife props. They had the costumes. <laughs> So they kind of had that guar aesthetic, but they also had that punk like. Da, 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 da. Yep, I wrote down shoestring budget guar. Yeah, <laughs> nice. That's perfect, actually. <laughs> oh hey, I found the band for that was the name band that they're gonna use. That was lame. Uh, that's not as cool as the sick fucks. They were gonna be called the Nikki Nothing and the Hives. <laughs> oh, I'm glad they went with sick fucks. Wow. Yeah. 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 yeah sick fucks. It is. Although the Hives did go on to have some success after this movie. Did, did they do anything else? Man. Oh, no. I was just Man. talking about the band, the Hives. <laughs> oh, the, <laughs> oh, the Hives, yeah. Yeah, I, I was just being a jackass. They, they dropped uh, the first part. <laughs> now we're right. Not. Yeah, after this, they're like, we got to we gotta bring a new image to what we're doing here, guys. Come on. <laughs> we got to get rid of Nicky Nothing. <laughs> right, we can't be shoestring guar. <laughs> Fucking... <laughs> Hell yeah, man! It also could have been a uh, it could have been an offshoot of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Now that I'm thinking of it, that's right, that's right. Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Oh, the only song I know from them is the Red Right Hand, though. Oh yeah, that was. 
I honestly don't know that many songs by them. I just know when I worked at my school's radio station, we had this guy who ran automation and just like every song was Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. It's like, oh boy, can we play something else? It's 2007, <laughs> man. <laughs> if you binge watch Peaky Blinders, you're going to get real tired of Red Right Hand. Yeah, it's on a lot. Real tired. Yeah. Anytime anyone walks into a room, it plays. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, that's not an exaggeration. <laughs> Two or three times per episode. Yep. Yep. In different styles. Yeah. No, thank you. I'm done with that song. I guess I forgot because uh, they're at the show when the blackout happens, but they do go home because that's when we meet the babysitter that we're going to meet again later. Bunky. Bunky? Is her name Bunky? It's Bunky, dude. Bunky. <laughs> okay. who, who is apparently supposed to be a teenager, but she looks like she's like 35. She is at least 31 or more. Yes. And I could have sworn she had her wedding ring on. <laughs> who knows? They probably did. Like she forgot to take it off. <laughs> but that's not why because their daughter is like goes home alone. But why were they not there the next day? After the uh, blackout, they got hung okay. up somewhere. And oh, I yeah. I, I know this. I, I know the answer here. Unless unless Roy, you want to take it? Go for it. I was Well, we'll see who's right. I was going to say they were at the demonstration and the father was at work. That's it. You got That's it. Right. Ah, nice. That's right. That's right. I forgot about that whole side plot of the nuke, the 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 nukes and the the nuke, uh, the nuclear power plant. Uh, yeah, demonstration that's never shown. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's cost extra. Uh, yeah, Tony, Doctor Dan's sister. She's the uh, the activist in the family, and she drags um, his wife uh, Nell to this thing. So yeah, uh, Lila is left home alone. Uh, while Dr. Dan's at work. This is where Fatty shows up. Oh, also at the house with the, the girl who we didn't mention is a is a child molester. Oh yeah, is it which so, I could have so done real uncomfortable. Could have done without this part. I mean, nothing happens, but it it the movie sure makes you think like it's going to happen. Yeah, I wrote down at this part I was like, is Fatty a chomo here? I kind of <laughs> don't like him anymore. <laughs> yeah, he definitely he definitely was. That was in his uh in his record there. And um, yeah, I was like, "Oh man, please, movie, don't don't go there." It doesn't, which is good. Uh, also, I do want to briefly mention uh, when the four guys—well, I guess at this point it's the three guys because they left the bleeder behind after that. Yeah. Uh, after that riot kill, they're like, "Yeah, you're not you're not coming with us." I just figured that was gonna be the end of the bleeder. But uh, so it's just these three dudes. They're driving around and they they fucking kill a mailman. Man, this part was so fucking funny. I, I laughed my ass off when this happened. <laughs> on the bike and they chase yeah. him on the bike. Yeah. And then like, they almost run him off the road the first time. And this guy, he's like had it. Cause they've been following him for like a good few minutes. And he looks at uh, Martin Landau's character preacher. He's like, what are you? Some kind of asshole. <laughs> and it's another quality death scene too, where he just kind of goes flying like, ah, and then he's dead. <laughs> Dude, he goes flying far too. Like they hit him, and he's like, he like comically flies through the air. It's like it's kind of great. And so they actually Mark- sacrificed the stuntman for that one. They did. <laughs> I I wasn't taking this movie. I mean, I I truly, truthfully, I guess I didn't take the movie too seriously throughout the entirety. But at this beginning part, all through that, I really wasn't taking this movie seriously. Right. But I right. think that's selling the last act of this movie short because the, you know, the actual home like assault on the Potter family with the guys outside is really good and, and pretty frightening at points. Yeah, it was really well done. It reminded me of The Strangers and Your Next. It, it gave me that kind of feeling to it. Yep, I wrote down your next. Uh, the murder of uh, Bunky and her boyfriend Billy is also really well done, I thought, right before that scene starts. Um, yeah, this is when the movie stops being goofy and mm-hmm. kind of funny, and then you're like, oh, shit, like, this is for real. Yeah, when they killed the hot blonde chick, that's when it got personal for me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you can be a child molester and be a real piece of shit. You killed the hot blonde, now we got a problem, bro. <laughs> that's where I fucking draw the line. And kill, uh, killed her mid-coitus. Yeah, yeah, come on. Yeah, At least let I him know. finish. Let's go. I know. Let him have their <laughs> be a, fun. Be a bro. Come on, man. <laughs> Dude, you get you guys know who um Billy is the boyfriend of of Bunky. It's Billy and Bunky. Who they originally wanted to get for uh for Billy was Matthew Broderick. <laughs> Can you oh. imagine? <laughs> Fucking Ferris Bueller could have been killed. Oh, wow. awesome. Ferris Bueller's day off forever. 
Oh man. We skimmed over the the fact that in the the prison the ladies meet this this guy. Just this nice looking guy who's a nice guy that lets them have their phone call. Oh yeah. And they bring him back to the house. So like uh you got Dr. Potter who immediately puts all authority on this stranger. Like asking him what to do. Can you go do that or what should I do next? All right, what are we doing now? All right, man, let's go. What do you got? So Marcus is talking about Tom Smith. And Tom Smith yeah. uh he gets real close to Tony in prison. And the reason why they're in prison is because they were at that protest and the protest got, right. They um, got arrested. They all yeah. got arrested at the, at the, um, at the protest. And then, and uh, he yeah, got Tony, busted literally. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a big old cut over his forehead, yeah. to which Tony's like, Ooh, I got a brother who's a doctor. He can take a look at that. Why don't you come with us? And Tom Smith, who is like, I really like a good looking, like a hunky, like late seventies, early eighties type dude. He's like, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to do that. That sounds good. Let's go. So they take this perfect stranger with them home. Unfortunately, they're going to, you know, they take them home for the worst, you know, night of their lives when they're about to get besieged by these three fucking maniacs. I liked, you know, like the the closing of the windows and the doors and yeah, barricade. You know, someone's basement. And yeah, I, I enjoyed it. It's a good siege. One thing that kind of took me out of it before we got to like the main siege was just how dramatic Tom always spoke. He was always like, yeah, we really need to get out of here. <laughs> it's like, dude, chill it on the drama for five minutes. Come on, we're getting attacked. Dude, yeah, he was like Snake Plissken the entire time. That's just yeah, true. that's what it was. <laughs> yeah, but whenever the, whenever the, uh, the, the inmates do attack, and man, it just goes off the rails from there because like you were saying, it's this goofy, funny you know, ridiculous movie up until that point. And then when the shit hits the fan, it really hits the fan. And yeah. uh, it just kind of has a different feel to it. Like it's go time now. So let's do this. Well, and like Frank is the true leader. You don't actually see him a whole lot. He's sort of directing people around. You see like, and Fatty's sort of like the, the dumbass that they just tell him to do stuff. And uh preacher, preacher is scary, man. There's cause, and I think it's, you know, I'm putting that on Martin Lando. Cause he, he really, both Melando and Palance really leaned into their parts and you know, it wouldn't have been the same without them. I don't think. Yeah. And that's a good point too, because preacher has so many lines and he's on camera so much. You often forget that Frank is the one pulling the strings of all these guys. Mm -hmm. There's a a detective that shows up at the house after uh, Billy and Bunky. Well, they went missing at the time. They don't know where they are at this point in the movie Mm -hmm. or at that point in the movie, which they just invite him to dinner. And he's like, Sure. So he just stays for dinner, which I thought was weird. I'm like, wait, did he just invite himself to dinner? Where they're like, oh, no, they invited him to dinner. So the the way the siege starts is he goes out to investigate the strange noise. And um, we saw the trio arm themselves during that riot. And one of the things that was grabbed from um, a convenience store or whatever, like, you know, Walmart-ish store, was a crossbow. And this detective gets pinned to a tree. With a, with a crossbow. And that's uh, when all, all this carnage like really starts to happen. Yeah, that was a pretty badass scene because you just don't expect a crossbow of all things to come shooting through them. Yep. And I also <laughs> like, too, how the de- the detectives were just like it was the 40s. They all had these double-breasted suits and fedoras <laughs> on. Like, ah, it looks like there's a crime scene here, Shay. <laughs> yeah, it's like you wandered from a different was, movie. Yeah, out of a different <laughs> era, yeah. <laughs> Donald Pleasance's doctor makes an appearance again, finally. Turns out to be an asshole because he he figures out what's happening. So like, oh, we can't get a hold of the potters and and uh, maybe we should uh, you know call the police because they said they were going to kill him and he's like no nah, can't have the police I'll just go handle he, it myself. He literally I wrote down the conversation because he's talking to his assistant and because he tried calling and the phone line is he figures out it's cut so he knows what's going to happen and so she asks him don't you think we should call the police and he looks at her dead ass straight in the face and goes never and then drives over there <laughs> and gets himself killed i thought that would lead to the reveal like he's actually the one behind it or he's manipulated them to do this kind of thing but really yeah it just leads to him being a jackass yeah it leads to him getting his ear cut off first <laughs> and then he gets kind of just killed off screen but uh, yeah, he, yeah. he definitely. He is definitely that what did. happened to him? I thought I missed something because I saw the ear and then I see um, our main character, Doctor, go running out there and he, Pleasance is nowhere. Yeah, he just died. He just died. 
Dr. Potter's decided he's having enough of this shit because he can't get through. The phone lights are cut because, of course, the phone lines are cut. And he comes up with this plan where it's like, oh, and preachers in the basement starting fires, you know, <laughs> that they're trying to put <laughs> out. Those damn matches again. <laughs> <laughs> they knocked him out. He like because he went down there to put the fire out and he knocked him out for the time being, which, again, why are you going to leave that guy down there if you're not sure he's dead? Right. But he right, comes right. up with this scheme that it's like, all right, I'm going to run out front and I'm going to start the car and I'm going to pull up by the stairs and you guys are going to run out. We're going to go. But he runs out and the car is already at the bottom of the stairs. Why didn't they just all go? So many bad decisions. That would have been too easy and sensible to do. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Um, I want to mention this before I forget. There is a scene in here. I, I might be getting the sequence not exactly correct, but it scared the fucking shit out of me. Now, it it uh, has something to do with Tony, uh, Dr. Dan's sister. And uh, we're told in like a really like offhanded way at the beginning of the movie that she had a nervous breakdown before she showed up. So she's like a recovering patient herself. Like she's got, you know, psych issues also. So she starts to hear something in one of the rooms and she goes over there and it's a window that's open, which we know that's a no-no because they, you know, barricaded everything or so we thought. And then all of a sudden, this fucking like, zombie apparition just juts out out of the bottom of the screen and it's like screaming and he's like the whole skin is like its skin is like covered in burns and flaking off and it's like covered in mud and i did not see that shit coming and i almost fucking fell off my couch i don't know if you guys had the same effect or had the same effect on you guys as it did on me but um i was terrified yeah i really liked that scene i thought it was the detective's body that they covered up that she imagined coming back to get her And I really like that part because it visually showed us that the psychological trauma that she has and how it manifests itself, because we only see it for a second or two seconds, but man, is it impactful. And then it cuts away and there's nothing there. So I thought that part did a really good job of illustrating what's going through Mm -hmm. her head when she's in this type of panic. Yeah. You know, Tom Savini was brought on just to make that monster, just to make that makeup. That was money well spent. That's the one thing he did. Wait, was it really? Yeah. Tom no Savini, way. Man. Well, it shows. Yeah. So is the, so now that the, the Potters start to fight back and the, the guys start to die, is Fatty the first one that gets it? Right? Uh, yes. Because he's like, he, he gets in the house and he's chasing him into the kitchen. Yep. And the daughter like cuts him down, like, you know, like slices yeah. his shins up. Yeah. Fucking yeah, she mild. sticks the cleaver. She sticks the cleaver in his back and then the baseball bat to the cleaver through the back. Oh, yeah. That was a good one, good man. Stuff. Yeah, good, Tom- good 80s. Good 80s kill. Yep. 80s horror movie kill. Tom and Dr. Dan fucking team up to finish him off. But yeah, man, Ly- Lila gets that thing started. So yeah, Fatty's gone. And then Reverend pops back up and tries to come back in. And he gets in a fight with Tom, right? Or uh, is it gets- Dr. Potter? Dr. Potter, and he st- he stabs yeah. he stabs stabs preacher in the back, kind of like into like a yeah. awkward embrace. In the meantime, Tony's getting bled on. Tom is this respectable kind of hippie guy that they brought home because he was so kind to them, and he's been helping them out and fighting off the impatience. And you think he's just like this all American nice dude, but then the longer it goes on, you see blood start to drip on uh, the sister's face. What was her name? Tony? Tony. Yeah. And yeah, you see blood start, yeah, you see blood start <laughs> to drip on her. And you're like, why Why is there blood dripping on her? And two, why is she not reacting that much? But, um, but yeah, it turns out Tom is the one who was bleeding. And then when she pulls away, she's like, oh my God, the bleeder. <laughs> Tom got me. I totally forgot about him. Yeah. I See, did too. I, I thought that was a great twist. I, I love this twist. I thought he was done with the movie. After the riot scene, I thought that was going to be the last time we're going to see the bleeder. But no, man, he fucking infiltrated himself back into the house as Tom Smith. Oh, I love this reveal. It was awesome. Is this twist not better than the actual movie? Yeah. Like, this was really well yeah, done. It, it is abso- really it, well done. It absolutely is the best thing about the movie. That and the, the, the Tony scare are my two favorite things about it. It was amazing. And so they take care of the bleeder. I forget how. How do they? Oh, dude, no, this is a good scene. Nell, Dr. Dan's wife, fucking stabs him with like a huge ass butcher knife. And this is like, again, this is when the movie, we talked about how it was goofy before. Uh, the actress that plays Nell, 
uh, I don't fucking have it in front of me, but she does such a good job because she's so freaked out. The last thing she wants to do is to kill a human being. And she just like very reluctantly just stabs Tom Smith, AKA the bleeder uh, right on the side. Uh, Deborah Hedwald. She does such a good fucking job in the scene. It was awesome. She's like hysterical crying. It was, it was really good. And then finally Frank shows back up after they think, you know, like they've dispatched most of these people. Like it's almost over. Frank shows up in the kitchen and he's staring at him. And I actually really like this ending too. It gives some more like depth of character to Frank and like shows that in a way, you know, the doctor, the Donald Pleasance's doctor is, he's been saying all movie about how these guys are just, you know, like misunderstood and they, they have their own sets of problems. And it really gives that like, yeah, no, like maybe Frank really is like, really needs the help that he, he's not getting right deep down is not a bad guy. He's just got, Right. A mental disease. I took it to kind of mean he almost found people similar to him at that concert who are into that kind of thing. <laughs> like maybe they're not all together there, but at the end of the day, that they, they dig each other like shit's cool. That's kind of what I took away from it. Because overall I wasn't sure what to think of it. I had to ponder over it there for a couple minutes, but that was the conclusion I came to. Yeah, because what we're always talking about is that Frank eventually ends up at a at the, the Six Fucks concert at yeah, the end of the movie. Yeah, because they let him they let him walk out of the house. He the, the well power- because he because the power comes back on and he sees right. Doctor Merton on on like doing an interview. What a coincidence! And like all these things like go through his brain and you see it like him thinking about it, it's like oh fuck like <laughs> I really fucked up here. <laughs> you know what, guys, we did wrong. Call it off. <laughs> I may have overreacted just a, just a bit. Dr. Carter, we're sorry. And so he destroys the TV and then walks out <laughs> and ends up at the Sick Fucks concert. Yeah, and he meets his people there. Right. Yeah, that's what <laughs> I was thinking. Like, those were his kind of people. Like, I don't know if you guys go to, like, punk or hardcore or metal shows, but people on the outside look at that shit. Like, you got to be a bunch of psychos to slam a beer right. and jump head first into a mosh pit. It's like, yeah, we might be. But hell, if it isn't yeah. fun. Absolutely. No, he smiles and that's how the movie ends. So give us your final thoughts on Alone in the Dark. So overall, like I said, I thought this was three quarters, just a goofy, fun 80s horror movie, not taken too serious. But man, that last quarter of it, it it really picks it up. It really throws down, man. And like I said, it reminded me of The Strangers or Your Next, something like that. These These people that are just you know hell bent on killing this family trying to break in by any means it it was good you know it has that that goofy humor to it it has that serious oh shit what are we gonna do factor to it as well you know it's only an hour and a half overall it was an easy watch it was a fun watch you know i might go back to it every now and then probably not something i would see you know every year or every two years but Every couple of years, I might revisit it just for a good time. I think I think that's the type of movie I would categorize it as. Agreed. It's a pretty breezy ninety minutes. Like Roy said, it's it's pretty goofy, uh, with like a weird sense of humor and also some just like straight up like bad plotting, which you just have to kind of excuse at the you know the first, especially the first half. But then it just like progressively gets more and more serious and and, and messed up, and it has some really awesome twists and and some even like good scares there at the end. Uh, so it's kind of a mishmash uh, of all these different things, which like it, it shouldn't work. But for me, it was like several tastes that tasted great together in like a kind of a quick breezy movie and um, or as breezy as a movie can be about a bunch of, you know, psychos trying to kill a family. I really liked it. I, I've never heard of this movie before, like, I don't know, like a month or so ago. And I'm, I'm really glad I, I know it exists. I'll definitely revisit it uh, again. I highly recommend it. Yeah, I like this one too. I end up really getting into it. I have no idea why Jack Palance and Martin Landau are in this movie, but I'm really glad they are because they're really good actors and they don't, they don't take any plays off, you know, to take, you know, to take that term from the sports world. But man, they really give it to their all. They, they're believable characters. Uh, it's, it it gives you that like eighties horror movie nostalgia feel. It's like an, it's a movie that would have been made then, but not now. And um, yeah, I recommend it. Like Roy, I'm not gonna go back to it all that often, but I can see myself 
every couple of years. And if I ever happen to catch it on TV, which is highly unlikely, I would definitely watch the rest of it. <laughs> um, this is one of those ones where it's like only released through one company and only on like some weird Blu-ray that you can't find anywhere. So we actually, it's on YouTube right now. You can find it. Yeah. Um, in great so quality. Go, yeah. Go, go give it a, go give it a shot. Yeah, you think you'll be uh, entertained. It's time for the return of Guess the Movie. Uh, Roy, this is a game where one of us, in this case Luke, tonight picks a movie and uh, gives us a little introduction on it and three clues so we can try to guess the title of this movie. So uh, let him let him read his intro and give you your clues. Take all three clues and then make your best guess. And uh, we'll see what we got. So Luke, give it to us. All right. So our guess the movie subject tonight comes to us from Australia. It was made in the year 1974. The synopsis is as follows. In the fictional small town of Paris, Australia, the residents have come up with a novel but twisted way of making an extra buck or two. And that is by making sure any passerby driving through or near their town has a serious car accident. The townspeople promptly then collect the luggage of those killed and injured in said accident, while those unfortunate enough to survive are sent to a local hospital where they are given lobotomies with power tools and turned into, quote-unquote, veggies, where they'll be experimented on by the local surgeon. By the way, what's up with Australia and, like, lobotomies with power tools? We just watched a horror movie uh, recommended to us by Danny Boy from the Creepy Crap podcast uh, called um, uh, The Loved Ones, where that movie is, like, chock full of power tool lobotomies. So, I don't know. It's just kind of interesting. Um, Anyway, did I mention that this is a... This is listed as a horror comedy. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Coming from Australia, it's not it's uh not a surprise. <laughs> uh yeah, yeah. This is uh I guess part of considered to be part of the Australian new wave genre, like from back in the day when all those movies were coming over. Um okay, you guys, here are your three clues. All right. Um uh, clue number one. This clue very largely depends on whether or not you recognize the name Peter Weir. You guys recognize Peter Weir? Maybe. Sounds a so, little familiar. So he's a, a pretty famous Australian director. Uh, this is Peter Weir's first feature-length movie. This guy did movies like, uh, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Galapoli uh, with uh, Mel Gibson. Oh, yeah. Uh, he yeah. did De- Dead Poets Society, The Truman Show, Master and Commander. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, big, big time, big time guy. He hasn't made a he hasn't made a movie in thirteen years. I mean, he's a pretty old dude now, but um, yeah, he's a uh, you know very celebrated uh, director. This was his first like feature length movie. All right, clue number two: the movie's title suggests that the modified cars that the villagers drive, which are very much a la Mad Max, by the way. Uh, are sentient, they aren't, and are hungry enough to have eaten an entire town. Okay. That, that's right. clue number two. And the last clue, the last clue is the town in question is the town mentioned in the synopsis. So, so like the it, name of the town? Yep. So the name of the town is 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 in the title. And then think about clue number two more than, I guess clue number one wasn't really helpful. Can I give it a shot? The killer cars that ate Paris, Australia. <laughs> Dude, you are. Well, okay. Let's see what Marcus says. Okay. All right. So, well, thank you for saying going first, Roy, because I totally forgot what the name of this town was. <laughs> I took good notes, <laughs> actually. <laughs> so, I fucking um, said so in the synopsis, Dan. Uh, <laughs> I know you did, and I forgot. All right. So, let's say Cannibal Cars of Paris. Well, Roy is is closer. He it's the the name of the movie is called The Cars That Ate Paris. Whoa, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, man, you you pretty much you pretty much got it, man. It's uh it's got it's got Why a five- movie called that if the cars are not sentient and do not actually eat people. And the and the poster says they run on blood. <laughs> it's all just a marketing so, ploy. Yeah, yeah. Uh the IMDb score for this is uh, is five point six. It's the it's the lowest by far uh, of all of Peter Weir's movies. 
But um, I watched the trailer. And it's one of those long trailers from the 70s. You know, if you ever watch a trailer from like a movie from the 1970s mm-hmm, or yeah. 60s, they're like five minutes fucking long. So it looks like they reveal the whole movie. This looks pretty good. And it also looks like a lot of stuff. Uh, and I can't like verify this or anything because I didn't do that much research. But like I can almost guarantee you the people that made Mad Max looked at this movie and they're like, oh, fuck yeah, we got an idea. Right. We can do that, but put a little spin on it here. Yeah, absolutely. So the cars at a Paris. Yeah, Roy, you pretty much got it, man. So congrats. That's crazy. Thank you. <laughs> I was thinking killer clowns. <laughs> That's why I threw killer in there. <laughs> nice. Roy, thank you so much for being on the show. We really appreciated having you on. We look forward to having you on again. Tell us where we can find you and where we can get your books. Yeah, absolutely. You can find me at author underscore Honeybrook on Instagram. And there you can find links to all of my books, YouTube page, whatever you want. Latest book out now is New Year's Killing Eve. We also have Roadkill Blues, Devils in the Night, and April Awakening. All quick, fast reads. I'm sure you're going to love them. So thank you guys so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I love doing this stuff. This one was so much fun. So thank you so much for having me on and reading my stuff. And uh, we'll see you next time, guys. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, man. Thanks for coming on. Come back anytime, man. I really, really had a lot of fun talking to you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Likewise. The Review to Death podcast is written and produced by the both of us. We release new episodes on Mondays. Thank you to Groove Witness for the use of their music. You can find them at GrooveWitness.us. Check out our written reviews at the link in the description and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Review to Death. Thank you for listening. And Luke, tell us what's coming up next. Well, coming up next, we're watching a movie called The Power. That's pretty much all I got. Later, Gators. If you want to hear a story of utter terror in a blackout, I got one for you. Because I, I already mentioned it's that, here. Roy, before we started recording, that I'm a, I'm a music teacher. I teach uh, elementary school kids. So uh, there was one year my school had like random blackouts. And we had like four of them throughout the whole year. It has never happened since, and it never happened before this one particular school year. And I teach, my classroom's in the basement. And uh, the first blackout we had, I had a class of first graders sitting on my carpet, and we get a blackout, and it's total blackout. Not even my emergency light stayed on. Oh, shit. So I'm in the basement, no windows, pitch black. I can't see the hand in front of my face. And I've got... 27 first graders sitting on the carpet losing their shit. Oh my God. Wow. Terror. <laughs> so what'd you, what'd you do? Absolute you terror. Like- <laughs> well, because I, I don't have my phone with me when I'm teaching. You know, I don't have it right. around. So it was in my desk at the time. And I had just, I was at the, on the other end of my room in the piano. And so it happened. And I'm like, all right, let me get to the flashlight in my phone. And I started like, all right, everybody just stay where you are. Don't do anything. Don't move. And I stumbled my way across my room to my desk, you know, running into everything that I had set out, knocking over drums, knocking over tambourines. Kids start screaming. And, uh, I think there's a monster in there or something. <laughs> so I, great I job, finally, Peach. Yeah, I get to my I get to my desk and I pull out my phone, and just as I'm turning on the uh, the camera flashlight, my emergency light goes back on. So we have like a little bit of light. Right, um, so- but yeah, no, like three minutes of absolute terror that happened two more times that year in the basement with different grade levels. Thankfully, not not that young the other two times, and for not as long, but still, yeah. Sounds sounds like you terrified your class, dude.